I call this old clothes and old wine. Okay? Old clothes and old wine. This is, you know, when you're asked to speak kind of on a moment's notice, you kind of have to go back to kind of what you've been studying already instead of just creating something out of new, new and improved, right? So I go back to this because this is what we're doing in our class back here. And of course, the spirit gets hold of me and goes somewhere completely different than I've been before. So you're getting something new anyway. It doesn't matter. Um, this passage particularly goes back to, and this is something to me, one of the things that I remember about my father. My dad was in uh, Christianity. Some of you when my dad, knew my dad when he was alive here. My dad actually was the general manager of Radio Shine here before it became Arizona Shine and moved to what it was on on 103.9 over there. Um, but it's always been in Christian radio. Um, even when he worked at a country music radio station when I was in fifth grade in Woodward, Oklahoma, K101, okay? And it, there he actually could talk to them and actually on Sunday mornings from eight to 10, he did what was called 101 Sunday. And what he did was he played contemporary Christian music of the time. This is the 80s. So you're talking Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith. Yes. Um, you know, that genre of music. And did teaching times along with that. Now, one of the things that radio did for my father, my father was brilliant. He had a great mind for, for, for Christian thought and Christian teaching. Um, but he was lengthy. Okay. He, if, you gave him, if you gave him an hour, he'd take an hour and a half. So the radio caused him to have to be very tight with what he said, right? He couldn't just reiterate and reiterate and reiterate. So in his teaching times, they were very brief. They were very quick, but they were very poignant. And one of them was on this passage of old, of old versus the new. Old clothes versus new clothes, putting patches on the old. Old wineskins and putting new wine in old wineskins. And this was, a big, this was a big passage for him. And it's just one of those passages, one of those times and things that has just stuck in my brain from my dad when I was in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, right? And so when I came across this, the opportunity to do this, I just taught this in my class. And so I'm just, I'm kind of sharing this out of this, that, that that's where I'm going from there. So this is an homage to my father. My dad was wonderful. He passed away uh, two years ago, I believe, two years ago. Yeah, we're up on two years or was it, was it two years ago? Two years. It was two years ago. Two yeah. years you've lost Yeah. So on Christmas Eve, actually, he passed away. So, yes. Good. Yep. Um, the passage is from Luke. Luke 5, I said 36 through 39, but we're going to go through 38 first. So let's, let's start here and see if we can keep moving. Then Jesus gave them this illustration. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and uses it to patch an old garment. Okay, why? What's, what's, what's the problem here? We, we don't, you know, in our day and age, if you have a tear in your clothes, what do you do right now? You go to Walmart. Kohl's, Dillard's, you know, JCPenney. You don't, we don't patch our old clothes anymore. This is not something that we do. But if you, oh, there you go. But if you have an old garment, something old, worn out, and you have a tear in it and you want to do something, you want to fix it, what would happen if you patch something new in the garment? Over a period of time, that new garment would begin to expand or contract and tear the garment that it's currently with, making it worse for the wear. Exactly. Correct? Okay. For then the new garment will be ruined and the pat new patch wouldn't even match the old garment in the first place. Right. There would be a mismatch. 
And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. This is kind of a different concept for us. We don't use wineskins very much anymore. They're not. What was a wineskin? What was it made from? Goats. They took a goat. They gutted it out. They used the belly of the goat. They kind of, they, 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 they touched up the arms and the legs, snipped those up and the head, the head where the head was, was the kind of the spout for the wine. And this is what they used to hold wine in those times, right? <laughs> this, sounds, this sounds awful for us, but for them back then, this is how they kept their wine. If they put wine into a wine skin over time, what would the wine do to the wine skin? Swell, stretch, and eventually that wine skin would become, become brittle. It wouldn't be as elastic as it was originally, okay? Now, if you put new wine into this old wine skin, what would end up happening? It would break, right? It burst. It wouldn't be as pliable. The new wine, what does new wine do? What does wine do in the first place? Do you know what wine does, Malia? Do you have any idea? It makes people drunk. Okay, we have a winner. We have a winner right here. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Okay. I'm going to see. So from the youth standpoint, alcohol, what does, how does alcohol become alcohol? What does it do? Huh? Fermentation, right? It sits, it, it, it starts to, a chemical reaction begins to happen over time. And what was grape juice, right? Over a period of time becomes alcohol. And that alcohol does other things for us, correct? Make people drunk. There we go. Okay. But that expansion, that fermentation would then begin to change the nature of what it sat in and the wineskins would burst. So for the new wine would burst the wineskins, pilling the wine and ruining the skins. The new wine must be stored in new wineskins. Okay, that's, this is Jesus saying this in, this in this moment in time. Question becomes, what is this new thing? What is he talking about? To get to the new, let's talk about what is the old. What was going on at the time? What was happening at the time that was old? And the first thing about old is Judaism. Judaism, what is, if you see this guy here, what is, he, what, who, who, what is that guy? This is how we would visualize in today's modern times, a Pharisee, okay? How did a Pharisee relate to God? The law, okay, yes. What'd you say? Iterations of the law. Really, and it comes down to this. The Pharisees created 100,000 traditions in order to hold up the law. And Judaism is one of them. Yep. So what are some things in which they would do to relate to God? What, 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 would, what would a Pharisee do uh, on a day-to-day basis? They would fast, there would be fasting. So they had, they had fasts that they, that, they, that they came up with that they would do in worship of God, in doing something for God, correct? Mm-hmm. What, else, what other things would they do? What, what other, huh? They'd put prayer boxes on their heads. Do you know why they would put prayer boxes on their heads? They said to, because they said to inscribe the word on your head. Why would they put little scrolls next to their chest to have this word next to their heart? A little bit, uh, now we're getting a little silly, right? This seems a little silly, but to them, was that silly? No. It was not silly. No. Okay. It was proper back then. What would you do? What, what, how did they treat the Sabbath day? 
oh, was it holy? What, 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 are some, what, are some, what are some things that would happen on Sabbath? What, would, what, would, could you, what, things, what certain things could you not do on the Sabbath? You couldn't work, but what did that turn into? You couldn't do anything. You couldn't enjoy life, guys. So you work six days a week and you come up on a Sabbath day, okay? And you hit Sabbath, and if you're a woman, you gotta worry about not looking in a mirror so that, because if you looked in a mirror, you might see a gray hair and you might pluck it out, okay? That's the level at which they would say, you can't work on Sabbath. They created a whole system of do's and do nots that had nothing to do with whether or not they're worshiping God, but that they created to have this day. And you worked for six days and you got to this day that was supposed to be a day of rest. And what did it end up being? A day of more work than you ever did throughout the week. Let me get back to my life of work because what you're asking me to do today is crazy. Mm -hmm. Very crazy. Okay. Sacrificial systems, they had sacrifices. They would bring sacrifices to a temple. Why would they bring sacrifices? Atonement. A lot of them just, did, did they really understand, many of them really understand why they did it? Nope. Probably not. It was it's what they did. It was the traditions of what they did. It was the things that they did, the things that they grew up with doing and so forth. Mm-hmm. Around all of this, their salvation was based upon what? their own works, what they did. What they did either saved them or did not save them. It either made them righteous or it made you a plebe who was not righteous. And did they look upon everybody else with compassion and mercy? There was no compassion and mercy. There was only judgment. There was only scorn. There was only those things, okay. That's Judaism, built upon what we're just gonna call self-righteousness. It's complete self-righteousness. You're dependent upon your own things that you do for your own salvation, saving, whatever. What about other isms of the time? I put this as kind of the Tower of Babel because really kind of all religion goes back to the Tower of Babel at some level. But how does... How does just the general purpose of people, how do do people go about life with the same, with this kind of same thinking? How do they, how do they manage this world in their minds? What do they create? They create their own gods. They create their own ways of works. They create their own little isms in order to find ways of saving themselves, right? So, Can we say that all religion is some form of self-righteousness? I have to do something because God requires that of me. It's me, me, mine, I. And it comes across that way, right? Here's a guy, I'm gonna show a quote here. Guys, um, he was an American novelist. And in 2005, he went to Kenyon College and gave this speech. Okay, and I want, he is an atheist. He does not believe in God. He has no isms in his head other than atheism, which is an ism, really, when it comes across, okay? Here's his quote to these college kids. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. 
And the compelling reason maybe for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time comes, and when time and age, and sorry guys, but we all get older, right? Randy, do we get older? We get older, okay. Yes, there you go. Start showing you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will, never, and you will need ever more power over others to numb to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is this, they're unconscious. They are default settings. This is where we sit. David Foster Wallace in 2005, okay? Interestingly enough, in 2008, he took his own life. Okay, where is he saying? He stumbled across the truth, but never went anywhere with it. Yeah, he just couldn't trust him or maybe not follow The question is this, how far, and I'm gonna call this self-righteous con, how far does this lie go? How far do we take the self-righteousness? How far people take it? Where does this lie? Where does this lie go back to in the first place? Satan. Satan when? Fall in the garden. What did he tell Eve? Did God really say? And if you eat the fruit of the tree, what will you be? You will be like God. Here's the lie. You can be God. It's you. It's all you. You can do everything you want. You can be anything you want. Just do it yourself find a way. This is the ultimate lie that we tell ourselves. Judaism did it. Yep. All of religion has done it. This is the old way. This is how people had lived life up to the point of Jesus. Whether it was in Judaism or anyism, this is where they were. My question is this, does this old exist now? Okay, let me show you a little line here. I left off verse 39 for a very particular purpose. But no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new. The old is just fine, they say. It's comfortable. As Mr. Wallace put it, this is our default setting, right? We always go back to this. Because a lot of times we look at this world and we look at whether we're Christian or not and we have this moment of conversion, right? And then what happens? You what? It gets, and all of a sudden, we, what do we always revert back to? The old ways, the old self, Okay.
Here's what's interesting. Let me ask you something. The almighty, powerful God of the universe created everything, created time itself, knows everything, is everything, has everything. Do you think your church attendance means anything to you, him? Do you think your sacrifice means that he thinks well of himself or not? That his self-esteem is based upon some action or activity that you do? The reality of the whole situation is this. God is fine. He doesn't need you. He doesn't require your particular behaviors on a particular day to do this, to have some kind of self-worth about himself. That's not who God is. But what did the Pharisees do? What did they think about themselves? Look at me. I performed every duty perfectly. God really loves me today. I did this correctly. Look at all those other people down there. They are not. I'm so much better than they are. That's the old. And we are eaten up with it. Because Jesus came in and changed something. And then we took it. Yeah, I'm going to trip over that all night long. And we took it. And we always wanted to change it back to the old. Constantine came in in 300 AD, legalized Christianity, and then proceeded to make it all about what you believe and all the things that you can do to save yourself. Go to confession, go to church, take the Holy Communion because that's the literal bread and, 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 and blood. Don't worry about anything else. Just do all these right activities in God and may, you'll go to purgatory then, okay? You'll go to purgatory and then if, if people pray enough, you'll come out of purgatory and you'll be saved. Then the Reformation came around in 1500s. Changed this, went back, tried to get back to the truth and did. And then what did we do? We found denominationalism. We discovered how to make it to our, did you get sprinkled or did you get dunked? Okay? We constantly go to the lie. We constantly go to self-righteousness. That's our default setting. It's who we are. It's how we operate. And time has no bearing on this. Just because at one point I said, Jesus is my savior, doesn't mean five years, away, five years down the line, I'm not still on that default setting at times. All of us are. I'm gonna look at the youth and tell you something. You guys are gonna find times of going back to the default setting. I wanna I want raise a hand to everybody in here who has gone back or continues to go back to their default setting on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. This is the truth that often doesn't get put into the youth's head. The youth sees, in this world, the youth sees church and they see of the self-righteousness. And they often treat religion that way. 
And then when they get into the real world, after they get out of here, the real world says what? Keep following the self-righteousness. Don't worry about those guys. When you hit those times, guys, I'm not saying you're not going to fall to it. You are. You've got to be able to cling back onto these moments in which Jesus says there's something new for you. Because all of these people that are leading you down these paths, that are telling you all of these things are good, and you may even discover a little bit of them, are going to go back to find they are wanting. They leave you helpless. They leave you hopeless. And there's one thing, there's only one thing that will give you hope in those moments. That's important for you. Sometimes I think as a church, we fail you because we produce to you all this self-righteousness, all these good things that we do, and we don't tell you the truth about what you're going to face and how you're going to face it. So listen to that. With that, what is the new? So I go to the passage that came actually right before this. Interestingly enough, this, this comment here, 39, there's two other passages in Matthew and in Mark that say the same thing of the wineskins, right? They pretty much are almost word for word, except for this line. This line is only in Luke, okay? And it actually displays to us a pretty real truth that we need to come to grips with. A second one is here in Matthew. All three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell this story of, the, of, of Jesus eating with tax collectors. This is basically the calling of Matthew. But only one says the quote that we're gonna to get to. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So what were the Pharisees doing? They were shaming, judging. They were looking upon other people as less worthy than themselves. Their self-righteousness was so much better than those little people sitting over there. How bad were tax collectors at the time? Think mobster, thief, um, betrayer of your people, the worst possible people that you could be at the time. Okay, that's, and then sinners, people that did not follow their ways, people that did not follow their particular customs and laws. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn, and this is the phrase that's only in Matthew. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come, not, for I have not come to call the righteous. I have not come to find the self-righteous people who do all the things correctly. I have come for sinners. The question becomes a matter of time. How often are we righteous? And how often are we sinners? We're always sinners. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every generous act of giving, every perfect gift, every righteous act you can think of, basically, 
comes down from the Father who made the heavenly lights. Anything good in you, was it generated by you? So who gets the glory? But in all of these other isms, who gets the glory? That's why we like it. It's, in many ways, it's easier. It's easier to believe that if I do this, 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 and this, despite all these other things that I do, I'll be okay. That's easy. That's the easy way out. Those rewards definitely don't last. Because in the end, they're all built up basically in our pride. Self-righteousness does nothing but build up our pride. In whom there is no inconsistency or shifting shadow. God is perfect. He's consistent. He is always the same way towards you. In accordance with his will, he made us his children by the word of truth. Did you Put yourself in God's way? No, he put you in him. So that we might become the most important of his creatures. Here's where our value is given because God has bestowed upon us the value. You must understand this, my dear brothers. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Our self-righteousness puts us in a place to be angry with others, right? It's if it's about me, the moment somebody does something that I deem as some kind of trespass, what do I do? My question is, do we want God to act that way? (laughs) How often would he be angry with us? constant anger. For human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, rid yourselves of everything impure and every expression of wickedness, and with a gentle spirit, welcome the word that is planted in you that can save your souls. Gentle spirit, kindness, love, joy, Peace, kindness, patience, gentleness, self-control. What am I talking about there? Fruits of the Spirit. These are in direct contrast to what the world will tell you you need to be. You need to go get your own. You need to look out for yourself. You need to fulfill your desires, your dreams, We do some unconscious things even in the church, right? Here's an interesting one, right? So um, let's say, you know, I've backslidden quote unquote, you know, I'm I'm drinking, smoking and hanging out with those that do. Um, What is a common phrase that we, that I would use to say, hey, I, I, I need to do something in my life. What, what, are we common, what do people commonly say? I need to what? I need to get right with God. Or I need to do what? Go back to church. I need to go back to church. I need to get right with God. What is the common denominator of both of those? 
I. You have now put yourself in a place that you think you can actually save yourself by doing something in light of who God is. Because what is the real, what is the real act that we should be doing at this moment? What should we be doing? What? Pay attention to God and humble yourself. This is not getting right with God, guys. This is humbling yourself and putting yourself in the proper position before God. There is a difference. One is on you. The other, God gives you. Second one, nevertheless, you are doing the right. This is James, by the way. If you've ever, if you've ever read James, James kind of comes off sometimes as a little self-righteous. I would say a very common thing in in people reading the Bible. You look at Galatians as, hey, this is the grace. Okay, got it. Back, it's back, it's back. We look at Galatians as kind of the gospel of grace and we look at James as kind of this, hey, do this. And we kind of say, oh, there's some works here. No, 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 no. James is actually very much grace driven. Okay. But in reading this first part, you would think differently. Nevertheless, you are doing the right thing if you obey the royal law. What are you saying, James? In keeping with the scriptures. Oh, it's about me doing. Actually, oh, I broke it. I didn't break it. The real quote comes like this. Nevertheless, you are doing the right thing. If you obey the royal law in keeping with the scriptures, you must Love your neighbor as yourself. So it's no longer about what you do. It is now about how you treat other people. Right? The royal law. This is very different than the traditional law in how we behave. You must... But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and will be convicted by the law as violators. For whoever keeps the whole law, you think keeping the law is good for you? You keep the whole law, but fail in one point, you are now guilty of breaking all of it. Well, how often do I break the law? Um, How many minutes are in a day? Maybe when I'm not sleeping, I don't know. I've broken it once for sure. I'm guilty of all of it. That I know, okay? For whoever keeps the whole law but fails, for the one who said never commit adultery also said never murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you become a violator of the law. Now, interestingly enough, in the Sermon on the Mount, how did Jesus describe adultery? If it's in your mind, how did he describe murder? If you have anger, you've committed murder. They've set the self up. You can't find self-righteousness. It is not possible. You must make it your habit to speak and act like people who are going to be judged, not by the law itself, but by the law of liberty, freedom. There's a freedom in this. Here's the, here's, this is the real big, the way the world says this self-righteous act of looking out for yourself that they do, the reality is, and Mr. Wallace would tell you this way, it's slavery. You will become 
a slave to that thing. He did. He made that quote. He said, all of these things that you pursue, and those are pretty much the things that we pursue in a nutshell. Looks, money, power, intellect, slavery. You become a slave to them. That's how this works. You're gonna become a slave to something. That is our default setting. For the one who has shown no mercy will be judged without mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So my question is, how often do we turn to the old and how does it impact us and the world around us? So how does our turning to the old, the self-righteousness, how does that impact us directly? Takes away, uh, our, takes away the very power of God because it puts it in whose hands? Our own hands. What else does it do to us? We live in condemnation all the time. And what, here's the insidious part about condemnation. This is crazy, right? We feel guilty. We condemn ourselves. Well, what did Adam and Eve do when God said, hey, Adam, where are you? They went and hid. When we go into condemnation, what do we do? We go and hide. We hide from the one that wants to save us. We hide from the one that wants to give us the, give, give, give us the joy and the peace that, that, that surpasses all understanding. And yet in that condemnation, we're gone. And then what happens? We dwell in that moment. And then what cycle comes back around again? We just jump right back on our self-righteousness cycle and start pedaling. Jump back on the horse. That's it. Here's a bigger one. How does it impact the world around us? How does our self-righteousness, let's take it away from just us being sinners, but let's look at us as a group, as an ambassador of who, what we say we are in Christ. Disgrace is God. What, we what? We're hypocrites. Now, the reality, the funny part about this is this. Are we hypocrites? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes, we're hypocrites. But we portray ourselves as having some form of self-righteousness that we don't have. At the very least, the world sees that and turns away from us, turns away from God because of it. This is their excuse. Well, look at those bunch of hypocrites. They say they want to live this way, but they actually live a different way. Okay? They don't know what to believe. My question is, and this is really the crux of the matter, what would this all look like if we really turned to the new thing that Christ brought? Because what did, what was the new that Christ brought? Grace, mercy. You what? We're new creatures. As Jesus went out to minister, it said he went about proclaiming the kingdom of God and people marveled and they were amazed. What marveled and amazed them? What people were marveled and amazed? Was it the Pharisees? No, the Pharisees hated him and rejected him. It was who? The sinners, the tax collectors. All of the sudden, something was said to them that said, you have hope. 
there's mercy, there's grace. And God's gonna love you in this. This is the new. What would this world look like if we brought the new to everybody around us? If we brought grace, if we brought mercy, if we didn't live in self-righteousness and judgment. It wouldn't be showy at that point. It'd be lifting people up. This is the new, this is the new world that we are to live in. This life we live in Christ is far more about how you treat other people and ultimately, who do you lie the most to? Yourself. And ultimately finding a way not to lie to yourself because no one lies to you like you will lie to you. No one knows how to push your buttons like you do. And we end up believing it because ultimately we end up living that way. And we think it's true. How do we live in the light of the new? How do we see that reality in our own lives? I don't have the perfect answer for that for everybody, guys. But I do know it's grace. I do know it's mercy. And I do know when you express that to somebody else, God will bring that to you. Interestingly enough, I missed last week. Okay, I was sick. I was really sick. I came here today and I realized something was missing this last week. I didn't get to be here. I didn't see you guys. I didn't see Josh. I didn't see Tim. I didn't see Randy. I didn't see Will. I didn't see the guys that pour into my life and keep reminding me of this position that I am in because when you're not reminded of this, you go down the self-righteousness path. It is our default setting. It's who we are. Why do we come together here? It's because that we are fighting the default setting in our life. Worship team can come up. With that, communion is not an act. This is not something that God desires. This does not lift God up and make him feel all warm and fuzzy inside that we're taking this, guys. Communion's not for God. Communion is for us. This is a time, this is a time of remembrance. This is a time to remember that that grace, the mercy, the love that Jesus, that God wants to bring to you was bought with a price and that price was his body and his blood. And then by the way, he had power over that because he came back. He is God in complete control. And he wants to extend to you all of the joy that this life can have offer and better yet, the joy that the next life's gonna bring us. Because yep. that's the ultimate hope. We have some hope here, although guess what's gonna happen to your body? Your body's gonna decline. With the decline of your body comes the decline of emotions. You're gonna go through swings, guys. Your spouse is gonna be sick. You're gonna be sick. You're gonna pass away. They're gonna pass away. 
our bodies are going to break. But our ultimate hope resides up here. That's the new that Jesus brought. We're going to remember that now in the body and the blood. So I ask if you want to come up, please take, go back, sit down, reflect on what is the new in your life. And ask God to reject the old self-righteousness that constantly we battle. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your Savior. We thank you for grace, for mercy, for love. We thank you for reminders that this is not the old, this we live in light of the new. And I just ask they put that in our hearts and allow us to express that to others, whether it's in this building, outside this building, in our families, in our jobs, in the world. You're God and we are not. We love you and thank you and praise you in your son's name. Amen.